please stand as we sing. Genesis to Genesis chapter 1. I invite you to turn with me there to Genesis chapter 1. In our recent studies in Genesis 1, we have concentrated on the first two verses of the chapter. In verse 1, we're informed of the absolute beginning of creation. God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And then in verse 2, we are told that in its original condition, the earth was uninhabitable. It was without form and void. And in our last two studies, we have exposed three erroneous theories that are suggested by Bible believers, each of which seek to insert millions of years into verses 1 and 2. And this afternoon, we're going to turn our attention to the interpretation of the six days of creation, and uh, these days, of course, are most of what we read in chapter 1. And uh, beginning with verse 3, we read of God's description of the way in which he transformed the earth from an inhospitable, unformed mass into a beautiful, well-ordered world, teeming with various forms of life and providing a fit place for human habitation. But before the remaining events of the six days can be meaningfully discussed, we have to decide what are, we, what are these days and what is the nature of these days? Are they to be understood as natural 24-hour days or are these words symbolic terms for long ages? Well, in order that we might be led into this passage, I'm going to read now the first five verses which give us what's in the first day and we're not going to read Throughout the rest of the chapter, we'll get to that as we expound it later on. But please follow along as I read, beginning with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. 
God calls the night light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Now before we examine this whole question about the days, so let's now pray for the help of God. Holy Father, we pray even now that as many ideas have been suggested about how to interpret this passage, many of them contradicting one another, we pray that by your Spirit you would guide us into the truth. And we pray, O Lord, that you would keep us from surrendering the teaching of your word where the battle rages. We pray, O Father, that in these days where many questions are being raised about this first chapter of the Bible, we pray that you'd help us to be faithful in upholding what you have said. We pray, Lord, that you would give us help by your Spirit even now to do just that. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Throughout the centuries, Christians who have held that the scriptures are inerrant and the infallible word of God, they teach that creation took place in six 24-hour solar days. And great giants of church history would include such people as John Calvin, William Henry Thornwell, and Louis Burkhoff. But others of equal stature have believed that the six days of Genesis 1 do not limit God's creating activity to 144 hours that make up six days. And perhaps you will be surprised to hear the names of some of those that have taken a different view of these days. And these include the great 19th century defender of orthodoxy, Charles Hodge and A.A. A. Hodge and B.B. Warfield, and renowned 20th century stalwarts as J. Gresham Machen and Donald Gray Barnhouse and Francis Schaeffer. And therefore, it is an established fact that godly Bible believers have, who have given their whole lives to opening up and teaching the scripture and defending the scripture against unbelief, Godly people have differed over these six days. And all of them are in complete agreement on the utter truthfulness of God's word. And they all agree that Genesis 1 is a count that is factual, it's historical. And likewise, they're on the same page about the historicity of Adam and Eve as special creations of God and concerning the tragic reality of the fall. So they're in agreement of these main issues and therefore, while there are some interpretations of Genesis 1 that are expressions of rank unbelief that are out there, we have to be very careful as we discuss this subject that we don't brand genuine believers who differ with us about these interpretations as heretics. Well, this afternoon, I'm going to present and then I'm going to refute two of these interpretations. But while the views that I'm about to discuss are erroneous interpretations in my view, and I believe these interpretations have serious implications, it's important that we speak charitably of our brethren as we discuss this matter. And so while at some points it might seem that I'm going very hard on those that entertain these views, it's not my aim that you go home after the sermon and sharpen your swords and slay everybody that differs with us as if there's Philistines that need to be wiped out. Nevertheless, Having pled for charity and grace in which we would deal with other believers about these uh, verses, 
I can't refrain from expressing my profound disappointment in them. Many are quite unaware of how rapidly many respected theologians accommodated their teaching as soon as evolution burst upon the scene, especially great 19th century uh, uh, Orthodox men uh, responded to the 19th century theories of evolution and the vast ages required for that to take place. In one of the chapters of his book, Evolution and the Authority of the Bible, Nigel Cameron, he demonstrates that the popular conception, the popular idea that there was a massive resistance among evangelicals to evolutionary teaching in the 19th century, that's just simply not true. By and large, most evangelicals, they thought, oh boy, what are we going to do here? This is scientific, and we have the Bible here. Somehow we've got to figure out how these work together. In other areas, he writes, evangelical Christians have taken their stand on the teaching of the Bible and refused to allow consensus opinions of secular, secular liberal Christian world to determine their own. And yet here, there has been a remarkable readiness to fall in line, irrespective of the teaching of Scripture. And then Cameron, he shows that, and here I quote, as the new scientific thinking, first in geology and then in biology, began to take hold in the 19th century, biblical commentators hastened to accommodate their interpretation of Scripture to the latest orthodoxy in science. Now, surprisingly, while evangelical theologians have moved away from a straightforward interpretation of Genesis 1, surprisingly, you might be very surprised to hear this, it's the liberals that interpreted it literally. Evangelicals took the chapter non-literally, but they believed it. Whereas liberals, liberals they took it in a historical, literal fashion, but they just didn't believe it. It's just a myth. But they believe that this is what Moses meant to say, or whoever it was that wrote this chapter. And to a large extent, this is true, I think, even to this day. More recently, Oxford professor James Barr, who is the author of Fundamentalism, a book rejecting traditional supernatural Christianity with its high view of scripture, this is what this liberal says. So far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writers of Genesis 1 to 11 intended to convey to their readers the ideas that A, creation took place in a series of six days were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience, B, that the figures contained in the Genesis genealogies provided by simple addition of chronology from the beginning of the world up to later stages in the biblical story, and C, that Noah's flood was understood to be a worldwide and to have extinguished all man, human and land animal life except for those in the ark. So you see what he's saying here. The real scholars, they believe in the universal flood that this is what Noah meant to say, or whoever it was that that, it, that these chapters teach a universal flood. They teach, you see, the six-day creation, so forth. Or to put it negatively, he goes on to say, the apologetic arguments which suppose the, quote, days of creation to be long eras of time, the figures of years not to be chronological, and the flood to be merely local Mesopotamian flood, are not taken seriously by any professor as far as I know. 
See what those liberals saying? The real intellectual professors of these, of these liberal universities, they don't believe this stuff that this is what's, that, that, that these, what these chapters are trying to say. To summarize, you see these liberal scholars, both in the 19th and now in the 20th and then in the 21st century, they admit that the text of Genesis is clearly meant to be taken in a literal historical sense. And the only difference is that they just don't believe it. They just think it's a myth. But they believe that whoever wrote it meant to be taken literally. Now this afternoon, we're going to summarize two theories that have been advanced by evangelicals to accommodate Genesis 1 to the so-called facts of modern science. And these two theories are similar to one another, the day-age view and the analogical day view. So what I propose to do is just give you a synopsis of those two, and then instead of refuting them separately, you want to refute them together at the end, as you see on the sheets that have been distributed. And first of all, I want to just summarize the teaching of the day-age view. And the most prominent proponents of the day-age view are Hugh Ross and Gleason Archer. Gleason Archer wrote a he wrote a very conservative survey of, of, of Old Testament and uh, introduction to the Old Testament. He's an evangelical. And so what do these day-age view proponents teach? Well, first of all, the days of Genesis 1 and 2, they view as long periods of time of indefinite length. And this view is an attempt, of course, to harmonize Genesis 1 with the evidence that is found in the majority of scientists that believe that there is an old earth, that it couldn't have been just in six days, about 8,000 years ago. And it's thought that the biblical account of creation is not in conflict with the dogma of evolutionary geology that requires millions of years to account for the geological strata and also the fossils that are found in that geological strata. And so they accept that this must be true, that these were millions of years old, these rocks and these fossils. And somehow we've got to fit Genesis 1 together with that. And obviously, they both must be true. And so Genesis 1, therefore, is understood as real history rather than an allegorical or mythical account. And this history, although it's real, is validated by modern science. And it should be noted that in his book, Creation and Time, Hugh Ross distinguishes the day-age view from both naturalistic and theistic evolution. So you get the point here. This first distinctive is that these are long periods of time, but they're historical, they're real. And then the second feature of this view is that Genesis 1 represents six long periods of time in correct sequence. And the Hebrew word yom, which is translated day in Genesis 1, they believe is used to refer to periods of time of indefinite length. And they cite certain texts that they believe that illustrate the fact that the word yom or day can also refer to something different than a 24-hour day. One example is Genesis 4.3, in the process of time, or literally in the days. It came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. So obviously it's not about one day, it's days, plural, in the original. The process of time, they believe this shows that this can't be just literal 24-hour day. 
Genesis 30 and verse 14, Reuben went in the days, days plural, or it could be translated in the time of the wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field. They cite Joshua 24, 7, after describing the Red Sea deliverance, Joshua adds, then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time, literally many days, plural. And it doesn't give, you see, just a few days, but it's a stretch of time that's being indicated there. They cite also Isaiah 42, in that day, and here is a singular use of the word yom, in that day, and it's referring to a future period of time, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And one closer to home is what we have right here in Genesis. Maybe you could flip over to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. Remember the structure of the book, the Toledot structure. This is the generation, or these are generations, or this is the history. Verse 4, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so in this passage, or this verse, it refers to the work of creation that's described in chapter 1, the whole work of, of those six days and Clearly, it's more than one day, and yet it says here that it was in the day that the Lord created the heavens, the earth and the heavens. And so they go to these different passages, and they argue that the days of Genesis 1 should not be understood as regular days as we experience them, but as days from God's perspective. And these include can include long periods of time, because as Psalm 90 and verse 4 says, a thousand years in God's sight are like yesterday when it is past. Then very briefly, in the third place, another feature of their view is that since the sun was created on the fourth day, the first three days could not have been normal solar days of 24 hours. And from the absence of the sun on those first three days, it's inferred that the first three days may have lasted for many ages. So this is just a basic boiled down view of the day-age theory. But now I want to give you, a, this is a little bit more complicated, what, what has been called the analogical day view. And older representatives of this view are William Shedd. He wrote a, I've got him in a library, his systematic theology, it's excellent. Herman Bavink and Franz Dalich, he's one of the, with Kyle, wrote the Franz, Kyle and Dalich commentaries on the Old Testament. And this view is set forth in an article also in 1994, and in a book published in 2003 by a man named John Collins. And the significance of this, this man in particular is that he's more recent, and furthermore, that he is the professor of Old Testament at Covenant Theological Seminary. This is a Presbyterian church in America seminary, a reformed evangelical seminary in St. Louis. I had one of their professors one time preach for me while I was ministering in St. Louis. Uh, what I'm about to summarize is a representation in particular, because it's more recent, of Collins' views. His views are summarized in a helpful way also in uh, Richard Belcher's commentary on Genesis. Now, when we speak about an, an analogical day view, let me just remind you of what an, an analogy is. An analogy is a comparison between two unlike things, but they have a resemblance in some particular. There's an analogy or comparison between these two in some particular, even though they are very different. 
God and human beings, you see, they're very different from one another. And yet there is, at certain points, an analogy or a comparison. And this analogy is expressed in the fact that man is created in the image of God. So this is what we mean by something that's an analogy or an analogical day view. And just to state what this view says, first of all, the days in Genesis are not human days, but God's days. They're different, but in some respects, they're similar. So there's an analogy or a comparison. In Exodus 31, 17, the Lord says concerning the Sabbath, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. The verse speaks of God resting and being refreshed. And obviously, God doesn't get weary as humans do. So there's something different about what his rest must have been like and his refreshment was like. It's analogous to our refreshment and rest on the Lord's Day. Back then, it was the Sabbath day, the seventh-day Sabbath. And there's an analogy between the two, but they're not the same. And it's argued that this shows that the days of Genesis 1 and 2, they're not identical, but they are analogous. They are analogical, you see, to human days. There's a similarity in some respects between the God's days and human days, but they're not the same. And then in the second place, they argue that in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, this is the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, the pattern of God's work and rest is analogical. It's argued that the reason that's given for the Sabbath keeping in Exodus 20 and verse 11, it represents an analogy. You remember what that verse says. I'll just read it to you. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so the pattern of God's working and God's resting during the creation week, this is an analogical pattern. It's not an identical pattern. Because the days are God's days, they're not human days. And so the pattern of work and rest is analogical. It's not identical between God and man. And then in the third place, they argue that the developments in Genesis 1 represent ordinary providence at work. And coming to chapter 2 and verse 5, they use this verse in particular where it says, Before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. And they argue that this verse shows that earlier on, the cycle of rain and plant growth and the dry seasons, this whole cycle of, of weather, this had not been going on for quite some time, but this cycle had started later on in the creation week. And they argue that this shows that it couldn't have been an ordinary week. It also shows that God's ordinary providence was at work. He was, he was working through the rain, he was working through these seasons and so forth to have all these things take place. And so you see, it, it kind of is a little bit of an accommodation to evolution. That's, evolution is kind of like God's providence working things out to, to have things develop in the course of time. And so they argue that there is God's providence. It's not all immediately, just at the speaking of a word, things springing to existence. It is a providential uh, work of God throughout uh, millions of years. 
And then in the fourth place, they argue that Genesis 1 is exalted prose. They don't say it's poetry, and we're going to get to the framework hypothesis in another study in which they argue it's poetry. But they, Collins, he argues that it's exalted prose, and therefore it should not be taken literally. He argues that the character of Genesis 1 is not myth, not like the liberals say it's just a piece of myth or, or poetry, but it's not regular prose either. But instead he calls it exalted prose, and this means that a literal human hermeneutic or interpretation must not be applied to the text. The author is not concerned, he thinks, with giving a precise description of the process that God used to create. We shouldn't interpret those, this chapter literally. And then in the fifth place, they argue, and he argues in particular, that the days of Genesis 1 represent six chronological successive periods of undefined length. They're to be understood as occurring in chronological sequence. The things that happened in day one were followed by what happened as described there in, in day two. And yet there is overlap between these days. He argues that. And just to give you an idea, you can see how this, this is ripped apart, our Presbyterian brethren, both in the PCA and the OPC. There was a PCA creation study committee, and this study committee came up with this position in the year 2000. The days are God's work days, which are analogous and not necessarily identical to our work days, structured for the purpose of setting a pattern for our own rhythm of rest and work. These days are broadly consecutive. That is, they are taken as successive periods of unspecified length. But one allows for the possibility that parts of the days may overlap or that there might be logical rather than chronological criteria for grouping some events in a particular day. And so in those two or three sentences, they really sum up this statement of what this position believes. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, they are, as it were, the, the background. The first two verses, they give the background. And they represent an unknown length of time prior to the beginning of the first day. And then, after verse 1, which is creation out of nothing, verse 2, the conditions when it first was created, then you have, after that, you see how God gradually developed it over the course of millions of years, described under the analogy of these six days. Well, this is just to give you a little bit of a thumbnail sketch, what these two positions hold, the day-age theory and the analogical day theory. But now in the time that remains, I want to give a refutation of the day-age and analogical day's views. And I've got eight points there. We'll probably only get through part of them. We'll get as far as we go. First of all, the proponents of these views are driven by a desire to show how Genesis 1 doesn't contradict valid scientific methods. This is always a good question to ask when you read somebody. What is driving this person to say this? What's their motive? What are they after in writing this? What is it that drives the proponents of these views to take their position? Well, John Collins, whose views we have just summarized, He's very concerned about the relationship between the validity of modern scientific methods on one hand and faith on the other hand. And he writes that good faith and good sound science need sound critical thinking. And the conclusions are sound only if they follow sound reasoning. 
Now, this is not necessarily a problem, of course, that we believe that God doesn't speak in gibberish that can't be understood. There is a rationality to the things that we believe. So there's a sense in which faith and good reason, they, they do agree at points. And this is not a problem necessarily, but you see, when reason or rationality overrides what the text says, then it begins to be a problem. What is it that drives a particular interpretation? What is the thing that makes us understand Genesis 1 the way we understand it? Is it modern science or is it a simple opening up the text in a plain, straightforward understanding? For example, Collins argues that it's a problem if God created with the appearance of age. He doesn't like that argument. Okay, God, you know, we believe that God could have created, you know, the, the universe with the light having gotten to us, the light years, even those light years away and millions of light years, he, that the light of, he created it with the light already reaching our planet. He created with the appearance of age in, in the rocks and so forth. And he thinks that this is, this is a problem. It's irrational to, to argue that way. But why is it a problem if the text also tells us that God created Adam and Eve, not as a little little thing in, in, a, in an embryo, but they grew up later on to be this and then this, and then came to birth and then grew up, but instead as mature adults. One could legitimately also argue that the Bible presents God creating with the appearance of age when he creates fully grown plants and fully grown animals. And so his argument appears to be controlled, I believe, by science rather than a straightforward reading of the text within its context. Now, when did this rush to embrace this day-age theory and later on this analogical day theory? When did this all start? The mad dash to come up with these theories, it only took place when Darwin's theory of evolution burst on the scene. And this is, this, is, this is very significant. It's plain as the nose in my face that the people that invented these theories and those that perpetuated them have been influenced by ideas outside of Scripture. It's things outside of Scripture that make them interpret the Bible the way they do. It's only after the rise of uniformitary geology with its long ages it's only after this took place that these theologians resorted to hermeneutical gymnastics to try to explain away the plain, simple, clear teaching of Genesis 1. And both the day-age theory and the analogical day theory, they were completely unknown to the church fathers and the reformers. And you wonder how for a millennium and a half, how for 1,600 years or whatever, all the people that poured over scripture would have missed it all out. And if this is something that really comes out of the text, and it's a natural interpretation of the text, somebody would have seen it, you see, before evolution came along. But they did, because it's not there. The first theologian to resort to the day-age view to harmonize with the Bible with the pause of millions of years was the Anglican theologian George Stanley Faber lived between 1773 and 1854. And it's true that some of the church fathers, including Augustine, didn't view the days of creation as ordinary 24-hour days. But this was because they were influenced by Greek philosophy. It gets it was something on the outside that, that influenced them. And it, it led Augustine to interpret these days as allegorical. 
And they reasoned, the, some of these church fathers, that the days were God's days, and God being timeless, it means that these days must be not related to human time. And in contrast to the day-age theory of today and the analogical day of theory of today, the, the problem that Augustine had was, wasn't that I, I, somehow we've got to figure out how this has happened over millions of years, even though it sounds like it's six days. That's not his problem. His problem is he has a hard time re, re, figuring out why God had to take six days. Why didn't he just do it all in one day? He must have just done it on one day, and, and he just used this as a teaching device to speak of it as taking place in six days. It never occurred to Augustine to interpret this chapter as, as something that talks about billions or, or millions of years. But there is this similarity between the interpretation of the Church Fathers and today's analogical day proponents. And it's the similarity is that they were both driven by forces outside of Scripture. With Augustine, it was Greek philosophy. And Greek philosophy spiritualized things. The spiritual realm was the real realm. And the physical realm is, is inferior and so forth. And Greek philosophy affected uh, Augustine's thinking. And when he saw some of the church fathers spiritualizing the days that uh, creation took place, it's interesting how Martin Luther, this is long before evolution ever came on the scene, but he reads Augustine. It's interesting how Martin Luther responds to Augustine. I want to read to you a couple of quotes. This is what he says in one place. We must understand that these days were actual days, Luther says, contrary to the opinion of the Holy Fathers. Whenever we observe that the opinion of the fathers disagree with Scripture, we reverently bear with them and acknowledge them to be our elders. Nevertheless, we do not depart from the authority of Scripture for their sake. And then in another place, he says, when Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, then let this ever let, let this period let this period continue to have been six days. And do not venture to devise any comment according to which the six days were one day. But if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. For you are to deal with Scripture in such a way that you bear in mind that God himself says what is written. But since God is speaking, it is not fitting for you wantonly to turn his word in the direction that you wish to go. So he rejects, you see, this idea of Augustine that it was just one day and it's just spoken of under the figure of six days. And contrast this with Gleason Archer, a proponent of the day-age theory. Even though he usually is very conservative, he defends the Mosaic authorship of the five books of Moses, for instance. It's very clear that outside pressures the pressures of uniformitarian geology. This is what has shaped Archer's thinking about this issue. And this is what he says. From a superficial reading of Genesis 1, the oppression would seem to be that the entire creative process took place in six 24-hour days. So you read that sentence? Yeah, that's the oppression because that's what it says. He admits it. And then he says this. If this was the true intent of the Hebrew author, this seems to run counter to modern scientific research, which indicates that the planet Earth was created several billion years ago. And then he goes on to say, well, that's what it was. It was several billion years. As one writer has put it, it's as if these theologians view nature 
as a 67th book of the Bible, albeit with more authority than the 66 written books. And Spurgeon, he was a contemporary with Charles Darwin. It's interesting, though, how he responded. God gave him some spiritual insight to see what was really being governing the, the thinking of some of these people interpreting Genesis 1. Listen to what he says, and this was written in the magazine he published, The Sword and Trowel, in 1877. We are invited, brethren, more earnestly to go away from the old-fashioned belief of our forefathers because of the supposed discoveries of science. What is science? The method by which man tries to conceal his ignorance. It should not be so, but so it is. You are not to be dogmatic in theology. He's now being sarcastic about these scientists, so-called. You're not to be dogmatic in theology, my brethren. It's wicked, but for scientific men, it is the correct thing. You are never to assert anything very strongly, but scientists may boldly assert what they cannot prove and may demand a faith far more credulous than any that we possess. Forsooth, you and I are to take our Bibles and shape and mold our belief according to the ever-shifting teachings of so-called scientific men. What folly this is! By the march of science falsely so-called, though the world may be traced to exploded fallacies and, and abandoned theories. Former explorers, once adored, are now ridiculed. The continual wreckings of false hypotheses as a matter of universal notoriety. You may tell where the learned have encamped by the debris left behind of suppositions and theories as plentiful as broken bottles. Amen. Well, so this is my first point. Where do they get this stuff? They didn't get it out of the Bible. They got it out of science. That's what drove them in their interpretation. But now, in the second place, the ordinary biblical use of the word day, it refers to 24-hour solar days. And if there are exceptions, it's plain from the context. The Hebrew word yom, which is translated day, whether in the singular or plural. Interestingly, it occurs 410 times outside of Genesis 1, and in particular in this way, 410 times when it's connected with a number, the first day or the seventh day, whatever it is, or an ordinal, a number or an ordinal, day one or first day. And so 410 times outside of Genesis 1, and it's interestingly, it's interesting that in every single one of these times, without exception, it refers to a literal day. It's so obvious from the context. And used in this way, as it is in Genesis 1, universally it means a normal solar day. And then you take another phrase that's used in the six days, the evening and the morning were the first day. Remember how you read that in that chapter, the evening and the morning were the second day. Well, you take that type of discussion, even evening plus morning, and if you take it without it being called a day, it occurs 38 times outside of Genesis 1. It's always for a normal length day. And then you have occurrences where it's evening and morning, and then the word day is used together, 23 times outside of Genesis 1. Again, every single time, it's a normal day length. When the type of word structures that are used here in, in, in Genesis 1, and we're talking about scores, even hundreds of times, without exception, they refer to literal days. 
And then you have instances where the word night with day occurs. And this is 52 times outside of Genesis 1. Again, it's always a normal day. No exceptions. And so I believe that these statistics, they show that there is no reason in the text of Genesis 1 to deny that the creation days of Genesis 1 are, are, are ordinary days. Scripture is absolutely consistent in the use of these phrases and in these, these words. And therefore, the denial of ordinary days, it must be something that comes from outside the text. It's been imposed upon the text. Now, indeed, as we cited when we gave their arguments, there are places where the word day is used differently in Scripture, just like we have words in our dictionary that have different meanings depending on their context. But when this takes place, it's not in the constructions that we have here in Genesis 1, like day and evening and morning and so forth. But there always is something in the context that shows you that it is being used in a different way. In the first place, the word day, it's not used in these places in the same way that it's used in Genesis 1. So this is always true. It's not being used in the same way. It's not used in connection with, a, with an ordinal or a numeral in connection with day one or the first day. Or it's not used in terms of a day being connected with a night and the two being mentioned together. It's used in a different way in those other places. And then secondly, with reference to all these other places, the context makes it very plain that it's being used in a different way. In some places, the word is used of a period of undefined length. Job 7.16, Job says, my days are vanity. Psalm 90 and verse 9, we read, Our days are passed away in your wrath. But even in these cases, the days are just a multiplication of regular 24-hour days that, that now are a succession of normal days. And it, it, you don't read when, when, day, when Job says, My days are vanity, that he's talking about millions of years. He's just talking about a succession of, of many days of his life. And occasionally day or yom can be used also of a portion of a year, such as the time of the wheat harvest, the day of wheat, days of wheat harvest, Genesis 3 and verse 14. But again, it refers to nothing other than a few weeks made up of normal solar days that happen to be harvest time. In Genesis 4, 3, the process of time is the words that are used there. It came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And the context makes it very plain that it's an indefinite number of days. It's in the, in the course of, of, of a process of time after several days or maybe even a few weeks or whatever it is, uh, then Cain brought this offering. The indefiniteness is clearly indicated in that passage. Isaiah 4.2 is an example of the word day used in a distinct prophetic sense. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And again, there's no parallel with the way in which this is used in, in, in Isaiah from to, to Genesis 1. The prophetic expression also, the day of the Lord, it's obviously a reference not to an ordinary day, but the grand day when God comes to judge the heavens, to judge the earth. 2 Peter 3.8 is another example of the word being used in a sense other than 24 hours. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years. But again, the context clearly indicates that the normal historical literal significance is not intended specifically there. He's just speaking of the fact that God is a patient and he waits patiently to save sinners. And that's the context of what uh, Peter is saying. 
And yet these are exceptional uses of the word, and these can't be legitimately used to read back into the Genesis 1 and 2 that somehow now that means that all those references, today's first day and day one and so forth, that they must mean, you see, long ages and millions of years. Again, consistently, the kinds of construction that are found in Genesis 1 when they're used in other places consistently, hundreds of times, Without exception, they refer to literal 24-hour days. Now, coming back to Genesis chapter 1, what do we see? What do we have in here? Well, scientist Henry Morris, he marshals the evidence that the day in Genesis 1 and 2 signifies a normal solar day. And I want to read to you what I think is very helpful that he says concerning this. He summarizes, I think, what we need to say here about the meaning of day. Furthermore, he says, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. As though in anticipation of future misunderstanding, God clearly, de clearly defined his terms. The very first time he used the word day, the Hebrew word yom, he defined it as the light to distinguish it from the darkness called the night. And having separated day and night, God had completed his first day's work. And so what do we read? The evening and the morning were the first day. And this same formula is used at the conclusion of each of the six days. So it's obvious that the duration of each of the days, including the first, was the same. It's clear that beginning with the first day and continuing thereafter, there was established a cyclical succession of days and nights, periods of light and periods of darkness. And such a cyclical light-dark arrangement clearly means that the earth was now rotating on its axis and that there was a source of light on one side of the earth corresponding to the sun, even though the sun was not yet made in the first three days. And it's equally clear that the length of such days could only have been that of a normal day. In the first chapter of Genesis, the termination of each day's work is noted by the formulation, and the evening and the morning were the first, or the second, etc., day. And thus each day had distinct boundaries and was one in a series of days, both of which criteria are never present in the Old Testament writings unless literal days are intended. The writer of Genesis was trying to guard in every possible way against any of his readers deriving the notion of a non-literal days from his record. In other words, what he's trying to say is, how could he made it more plain than what he did when he wrote these the, when he wrote the sentences there of that chapter? And here I need to just to briefly respond to the argument that since the sun was not created until the fourth day, the first three days couldn't have been normal solar days. And when we get to that passage of the sun being created, we'll talk about it a little bit more. But again, let's remember that the word yom or day is consistently defined by a number. Each day is said to consist of an evening and a morning. In the first three days before the sun was created, they're still defined in the same way. There was light, there was darkness. It just, it's just what that the, it wasn't the sun, it was just not the source of that light. God provided another source of that light until he created the sun. Well then, I want to say now in, in uh, boy, time has really gotten away from me here. I think we're going to have to skip some of these arguments here. Maybe we'll come back to it at another point. I don't want to weary you. I know that this requires a lot of thought. So I'm going to skip all the way down to our final, our final argument here. And uh, we'll have to come back to those other issues at some other point. 
But I want to stress in conclusion in our eighth argument here, the analogical day view that undermines the purposecuity of Scripture. Purposecuity means clarity. And it's exceedingly important that we show that Genesis, like the rest of the Bible, was written to be understandable. This is what we mean when we're referring to the perspicuity of Scripture. God's people didn't need to wait for thousands of years, thousands of years, until modern science suddenly made it available that they could finally really understand it. God intended that ordinary people, ordinary people, whether believers of the Old Testament or the New Testament era, ordinary people using sound principles of interpretation would come to the understanding of the message of the Bible without needing some kind of scientific experts to tell them how they understand it. Now, this doesn't deny the benefit of carefully studying the original languages and the culture and, and some of those things that, that help us get a deeper understanding of it, but God's word has been written in such a way that ordinary people, non-specialists, can read it and get the basic message that it is intended to convey. And here I want to read from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 17, some very familiar words. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 17, or 15. Paul says, And from a childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now notice here he says all scripture. This includes Genesis 1 and 2. And it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. Now while in Reformation times, the elite group that claimed to have a monopoly on scripture was the Roman church. The Roman church tried to keep the Bible out of people's hands, remember? Because you need to get up. We're the experts. We're the only ones that can understand it, right? If you get it in your hands, you're going to get it all messed up. So we're the ones. We have to keep the Bible with us. So it was the Roman Roman magisterium that was the, 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 could, the... These were the official interpreters. But now you see in many circles, it's not so much the Roman church, but it's scientists. And the claim of long-age Christians, in effect, is this, that ordinary people... They can't understand scripture without the, under, without the insight of modern scientific experts in chronology, in astronomy, in geology, in biology. We've got to wait till all these experts now in the 21st century finally have come to understand these things. Now we can understand what Genesis 1 and 2 mean. But it was a total mystery until this time, until this took place. The analogical day view, it runs, I believe, directly counter to the perspicuity of scripture. Its whole approach assumes that the meaning that's attached to God's words as he intends them is different from the way man understands these same words. And if an ordinary man picks up the Bible and he reads the first two chapters in the Bible, it's hopelessly impossible, you see, for him to understand the message of those two chapters, you see, because he has a total misunderstanding of what day means. He didn't hear what the scientists are now saying what day means. It means a million, it means a billion years now. And until uh, centuries later, many centuries later, he never could understand those chapters. But blessed be God, we have these scientists now and have told us all the truth, and now we understand what it all means.
hogwash. Dear ones, this idea of Scripture, it misses out on God's intended purpose for Scripture. God gave us the Bible to teach the ordinary man of God. He wants every Christian to believe it and to read it. And he wants them to understand it. And the ordinary man or woman that reads Genesis 1 and is uninstructed in the complex relationship between modern science and the Bible, the ordinary believer over the centuries, he would never imagine that this passage is talking about a process that involved millions and even billions of years. The idea that Genesis 1 is elevated prose and not normal prose. This leads one away from understanding the text as something that describes what God actually does in creation. John Collins, he mentions the possibility that the days in Genesis 1 overlap with one another. And he raises the question as to whether or not everything mentioned in Genesis 1 in connection with a certain day actually happened on that day. Instead, he thinks the author groups some things you see thematically or, or logically. And he stresses that the style of Genesis 1 and 2 is elevated prose, which means we can't read it literally. And these chapters, he says, they're not so concerned about what, how God may have actually created the world. That's not really the main thing that they're concerned about. The main thing they're concerned about is what fruit they convey about God. This isn't about something that literally happened, but it teaches us about God. And that's the main thing, is, is to go there and not to interpret according to what, which type of approach, whether it's literal or otherwise, but it's just that we can learn about God. And dear people, I have had a Reformed Baptist pastor argue with me in the same way. These issues, you see, these issues are real that, that we need to, to guard against. Well, this approach, I believe, is exceedingly dangerous. It no longer understands the text to be saying what it actually says, or that God actually created the world in the way that Genesis 1 says he created it. And one of the reasons why our theme is so important, dear people, is that unless we see that Genesis 1 has been given to non-specialists who can read it and understand it, we will fail to see that the Bible is to be taken seriously when it speaks to the real world. If we avoid dealing with what the Bible says about creation because only the specialists understand it, this is only going to reinforce the tendency of religion to be disconnected from the real world. And if we leave it to the specialists, as Douglas Kelly puts it, we put scripture and Christianity into a stained glass closet that does not impact the space-time realm. And the doctrine of creation, it's foundational to our evangelistic message. How did the apostles preach? We heard about this, this wonderful spread of Christianity the first hour this morning. But when Paul went into a pagan area and he began to preach, how did he begin his message? He didn't begin with the Jewish covenants that God made and all those kinds of things because he wasn't talking to Jews. He was talking to pagan uh, Gentiles. And you remember in Lystra, in Acts chapter 14, where they tried to offer sacrifices unto Paul and Barnabas. Paul responds in this way. He says in verse 14, Acts 14, 14, but when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and they ran in among the multitude crying out and saying, men, 
Why are you doing these things? We also are men of the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them. Who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. What does he do? He, he says, God created you. He created everything. You are accountable to this God. You should worship only this God. But you see, if if this day-age theory is correct, or the analogical day theory, Paul should have changed his message. This wasn't quite accurate, you see. Men and brethren, do you not see that there was a cell that generated itself and the, and the mimic soup that was once there billions of years ago, and it turned into a tadpole, and it turned into something a little bit better that squiggled around, and eventually out came an ape, and then eventually came a man. What's an amazing thing that all that happened? He didn't preach that. He preached what he has read many times in Genesis 1. And he preached it in a straightforward manner. And to assume that the early chapters of Genesis are not historical accounts of what God actually did, and that they are there just to reveal some spiritual truths, this is to relegate the Bible and religion to the realm of the ethereal. It's just mystical. It's out there spiritual truths. It's It's unreal. And those who think that they need to adjust the message of Genesis to suit modern evolutionary dogma in order to have credibility in the world, instead of gaining the world for Christ, they empty the church into the world. You see what happens? We think we're going to do this to bring the world into the church, get them saved, because we're not going to look like Bible-believing nuts that believe it literally, like it's written. But what happens? What has happened historically when people have tried to do that? Instead of bringing the world into the church and getting them saved, they've emptied the church into the world. That's what's happened. You look at these liberal churches. They're emptying. They're losing ground. Uh, we have struggles, but for years, th these churches have been emptied out into the, into the secular society that is all around us. For the past century and a half, the driving motive of liberalism has been to make the message easier to believe. But the only thing that succeeded is in making Christianity not worth believing anyway. People have been leaving liberal churches by the droves. Liberalism has emptied the churches of Europe to such an extent that almost nobody goes to church there anymore. And why should we follow that example? Why should we think, well, we've got to be, we've got to be uh, woke we got to be with the times, and we gotta, we got to adjust our thinking because this, this will never be appreciated and received by this generation. Dear people, that's a false, that's a false idea. The only way we're going to bring people to realize that they're in serious shape before the God that made them is to tell them about the God that made them, how he made them. He spoke, and it was done. And he formed man uh, out of the dust of the ground. Michael Denton, who is a scientist, I believe he's an atheist, he speaks of evolution as a theory in crisis. Even though no doubt he's preached it all of his life. It's a theory of crisis, he says. It's being disproven more and more. Now why should we behave as if creation is a theory that's in crisis? It's not a theory in crisis. This is a theory. It's not a theory even. This is a true account of what took place. 
And we need to preach fearlessly this true account to this generation that hates God and wants to disobey God until they realize that someday they will go to account to that God that made the heavens and the earth. Otherwise, they're not going to take him seriously. It's just all re unreal spiritual things that are up in the air. It's not really real. And so let's put confidence in what the Bible says. Stick to that message and be faithful to it until the day we die. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We bless you that you've given to us this infallible book, this book that you meant for us to understand. And we pray that you will forgive us for the many ways in which we have mistakenly interpreted your word. But we do pray that you would teach us the simplicity of children to read it and to believe it as it is, to take it straightforwardly and to embrace it with faith trusting in you and knowing that you who know all things, you who were there in the ages gone by when you created the earth, you are the only one that can tell us what happened back then because none of us were there. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us to be faithful in preaching this biblical message to the world. We pray that your church would have a resurgence of this kind of faithfulness in our day. We pray for Ken Ham and for Andy McIntosh and for these men that are devoted to defending this truth of creation. Give them boldness, give them wisdom, give them grace, give them an entrance. Bless the labors of the Creation Museum, the labors of the, of the Ark Encounter, the labors of these uh, creation publishers. We pray, O oh Lord, that the message of, of what you made and how men are accountable and how we all are in Adam, Adam and we send in Adam, how we now need a second Adam. Lord, make this message once again to reverberate throughout this land. We pray it in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen.